0: Well, coming up this half hour, we are going to check in with Mike Agrabo, host of Get Connected. But right now, we are going to talk about disconnecting. And the host of the Employment Hour here on CKNW, Lior Sanfiro, is joining us now because one of the stories out this week has to do with the Liberals taking a look at whether or not we need tougher rules when it comes to disconnecting and not answering email, not being available 24-7. Lior, thank you so much for being with us this morning.
1: Good morning. Great to be with you.
0: Good morning. What do you think about this? Do we need um, tougher laws, tougher labor standards when it comes to workers and being able to disconnect?
1: There is no question that this has become an issue in the age of technology. In the age of everyone having a smartphone and a tablet and and being connected, people end up doing a lot more work when they're officially off work, and that's going to impact their time with their family, their time to recharge their battery, their mental health. No question that this is a real, live issue. To me, the real question, though, is, can the government intervene and make this somehow better? And to, I am very concerned that this is one of those cases where overregulation is not going to solve anything and, and potentially create more conflict between employer and employee. I think that the ideal scenario is that, employer, that employers and employees deal with this on their own and have policies that are acceptable to both and deal with this ideally at the beginning of the the outset of the employment relationship so that everyone is on the same page Uh, and there's got to be a way to compensate employees to do this extra work so it's not quote-unquote free work it should count towards overtime and it should count towards hours work etc but for the government to come in and say no you can't do this I think is going to be a big problem and I don't think it's going to it's going to meet the realities of business in the 21st century.
0: Because it's not as though we're all working set hours or nine to five jobs where we punch a clock and uh, in that traditional sense in that a lot of people, I think, use this as a way of of staggering work hours or thinking, well, if I need to, I need to take this, uh, take a couple of hours off for an appointment or for whatever reason, at least I know I am connected and I can finish this work in the evening or I can finish it on the weekend. And I guess the, the issue is that a company, somebody not taking advantage of that.
1: And you're absolutely right that some of the flexibility that technology has offered us and has offered our workers is the ability to do work remotely, is the ability to do work outside of the office, which gives flexibility. And trying to over-regulate and, and limit the ability to do work outside of uh, regular traditional work hours is going to uh, limit this flexibility, which is not what we want. But there's another issue here, and for those companies, those employers that are in the customer service type of uh, industry, where they're dealing with members of the public, there's now this expectation. If you're you're serving members of the public, that you're going to be available. Because if I'm a customer, I know that my service provider has a phone, so I don't understand why they won't get back to me if I text them or if I email them. So for a business to be competitive, they need to be able to to get back to their customers and their clients when they need answer, when they need help. And if one company doesn't do it and someone else does, well, they're not going to be able to compete. Finally, my my other concern with this is if you're going to impose these restrictions to the extent that uh, another employee may, may say, well, I don't mind, employee, I don't mind doing this, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, who do you think ultimately the employer is going to favor? Who do you think is going to be up for a raise? Who do you think is going to be up for a promotion? So I think it does create this uh, unfairness in the, in, in the workplace, which is why I think over-regulating and trying to impose laws and impose restrictions not the way to go. Let's encourage employers and employees to have an open discussion, to have policies, uh, but beyond that, I would leave that strictly to, to those parties to deal with these issues.
0: Uh, You're right, because if there is one employee, and there are always those employees that uh, will work for free and will put in that extra time and not expect compensation. But if it's dealing, if we were then dealing with that because it was a labor, a new labor standard, uh, how would that even look as far as then would it take that uh, an employee complaining to a a federal branch? Would they have to investigate and prove that yes, uh, you weren't disconnected or yes, your company forced you to stay connected?
2: Well,
1: that's exactly how it would work. Any uh, employment standard uh, has to be enforced by way of of the government for the most part. It could be through the courts as well, but that would really mean that the employee who feels that he or she was wrong would have to file that complaint. And, And as a practical matter, if I'm working for you, and you uh, wanted me to answer some emails after work, am I really going to go now to the, uh, to the government, to the Employment Standards Branch, and file a complaint against you? It's probably not going to happen, and, and if it does, you're probably not going to view me uh, very positive, positively. So I, I really don't think that is very, very practical. I think that there should be a way of, ups, uh, of making sure that the hours count and monitor those hours, and document those hours, so that if I'm spending half hour each night answering emails, that time adds up, so I should be compensated for that, and if that puts me beyond an overtime threshold, then I should get paid for overtime, I should not work for free. But uh, to say that uh, my employer is not allowed to ask me to work, or that I'm not allowed to work those hours, how do you enforce that, do you even want to enforce that, I I think it creates uh, more problems than it solves.
0: And I suppose it would be. It, it can be a stressful situation if you have a boss who has a habit of emailing you at ten o'clock at night and say your shift ended at six. If you're being emailed at ten o'clock at night and there's an expectation that you're responding to that email, that can be stressful. And I can see how the argument there is it could lead to burnout, to higher stress. But that does seem like something that should be dealt with, perhaps at the the work level.
1: make make no mistake about it the problem is real as I said at the beginning the problem is real and and I'm not suggesting that uh, we should ignore this and and move on not at all Uh, I I don't think that uh, I I do think that some employers can take advantage of employees willingness to to be team players in a sense Uh, so we need to address that but uh, it's in France for example what they've done is they required the employer and employee to to deal with this and by entering into an agreement if there's no agreement, there's no, poli- there's no penalties. The employer doesn't uh, get penalized. So, yes, let's put in place, and that's not unusual in employment law, uh, the obligation of employer and employee to turn their mind to this issue, to create policies. Let's have a policy. You can require an employer to actually have a policy. You just shouldn't be telling the employer what that policy is uh, I think if we can do that, take the france example for for uh uh yeah for a second. I think that could actually work, and it could potentially solve some problems uh without complicating matters unnecessarily
0: uh, do you think there are certain industries though that are more when you when we talk about yes, this is an issue, are there industries where it's more of an issue?
1: Well, yeah, as I said before, any industry that deals with members of of the public, uh, those types of industries, it's an issue because your customers, your clients expect a response. Uh, They expect you to be available. And that's a problem. It's certainly less of a problem in the manufacturing field. If I work on a machine uh, every day, it's probably not going to be expected that I'm going to have much to do after hours by way of email uh, or, or otherwise. So I think those industries are are, are very much uh, at stake. Uh, also, those industries dealing with customers and clients outside of the out of the, the jurisdiction, even outside of the country, where there's hour differences, you need to accommodate for that, and you need to be available beyond your traditional, say, nine to five hours. So yeah, uh, those industries are going to be more uh, more susceptible to these issues coming up. But that is the reality of the situation. What we can't Have uh, the government say, well, we want you now not to use Netflix. We want you to go back to Blockbuster because that can happen. We've moved beyond that. Uh, Business has changed. Technology has changed. So we have to deal with it, make sure people are not being taken advantage of, but not go back in time.
0: Thanks for being with us on this Saturday morning. As you know, there has been no shortage of feedback. There has been no shortage of talking about the Trans-Pacific Pipeline, the Federal Court of Appeal ruling this past week. But what do we do moving forward? Well, Dwight Newman is a professor of law, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights in Constitutional and International Law at the University of Saskatchewan. Also a Monk Senior Fellow with the uh, Macdonald-Laurier Institute and joins us on the line now. Dwight, thanks so much for being with us
2: oh i'm happy to talk with you Uh,
0: what is your take on this i know it's a very lengthy ruling and uh, we got plenty of reaction uh, before even getting to a lot of the finer points but uh, what seems to be uh, coming to the surface now is this isn't a blanket project cannot go ahead but more of a, a, a pay attention to this fix this do more of this and perhaps bring it back and it might be approved
2: uh, that's right. I mean, the there's a part of the judgment where the court even speaks as if um, they think this could be a very focused and specific analysis that goes ahead uh, and that uh, it could be done very efficiently. Uh, now, uh, other parts of the judgment might make that part look a little optimistic in terms of the timeline to it, um, but uh, uh, it, it's clear from the judgment that it is possible to go ahead. Uh, in further consultations and in further analysis, uh, and then to consider the project again, uh, and uh, conceivably for it to be approved again.
0: In the meantime, while all of this is presumably happening, what does this say about Canada as a place for investment?
2: Uh, It's a pretty challenging place in some ways, uh, uh, at least on these kinds of projects. Now, to be clear, there are lots of smaller projects that are going ahead all the time. Um, and uh, the consultation issue in a case like this was immensely complicated by the fact that it's a, a linear project crossing uh, the traditional territories of a lot of different Indigenous communities where people, uh, companies that are dealing with one community, often are able to negotiate arrangements there. Um, in this case, that was much more challenging. But the, the really devastating part in terms of uh, Canada as a place to invest that comes out of this is sort of the regulatory process and the fact that it goes ahead and then there's a further regulatory process where there's a court ruling two years later that says there was a problem with what happened and just the sheer length of delays associated uh, with all of these court challenges uh, I think creates a lot of uh, uncertainty and the fact that this now sends things back to uh, further analysis and uncertainty on this project. In this case, uh, it's no longer a private investor that needs to worry about that, and I'm sure they're pretty glad to to be rid of it, um, in a sense, uh, to not have that ongoing problem.
0: And when we talk about the the NEB, I saw yesterday uh, the finance minister, the federal finance minister, uh, saying that they – trying to put it back, I suppose, on the previous government, saying that the liberals, the federal liberals, inherited a flawed NEB process, which to me seemed a little bit rich to be blaming the previous government when the current government has been in power for as long as it has – and they also approved it based on that NEB framework, which they could have changed if they felt it was so flawed. Uh, does this open up the door to changing it to make sure that it's not a flawed process and we don't have something like this again, like you said, that's approved and two years down the road, the courts quash it?
2: Um, Well, I I would highlight that there are two parts to the judgment and one is that there was a problem uh, apparently in what the NEB did according to the court's interpretation of the statute um, on environmental assessment and I think it's a new interpretation of the statute, um, not necessarily one that had been anticipated before. Uh, uh, So there may need to be some thinking about uh, just what the statute is supposed to mean in terms of the scope of NEB review. Um, Now it's true that problem was an inherited problem given how the court interpreted it. The other side is the consultation side though. Uh, and there, the problems in consultation were mid 2016 to late 2016, the very last phase of Indigenous consultation, uh, after the NEB report and before the cabinet decision. And the the, the shocking part to what's occurred here uh, is that uh, uh, that was after the Northern Gateway decision. So, with the guidance of that decision, the government in mid 2016 through late 2016 didn't manage to uh, develop its consultation process in a manner that satisfied the legal requirements. Uh, And that's not an NEB issue. Uh, That's an issue about government consultation processes that's certainly going to need to be addressed or or at least execution of of consultation uh, because the court says some very uh, specific things about that here.
0: What do you think is the, is the bigger stumbling block then? Is it consultation? Because while we hear a lot from people who are opposed, there are many First Nations who are in favour of this project. Is it the consultation or is it the idea that the NEB didn't bother or didn't look at the increase of tanker traffic and what that could mean for the Orca population?
2: Uh, well, those are those are both identified in the judgment as issues, so uh, and as things that need to be corrected. So the the court is saying the NEB needs to go back and carry out some reconsideration, taking account of uh, some things that it didn't before. But the the crucial one um, is simply. Uh, a focus on uh, the impact of increased marine shipping. Um, And then there's a separate conclusion uh, that there was a failure on the consultation front during that last phase of consultations, and they're saying the government needs to go back and redo that phase of consultations uh, in light of what the court judgment is saying. At the same time, the court is saying what needs to be done might be able to be specific and focused, and that's where... Um, part of the judgment says maybe it can be quite efficient, um, uh, although it's awkward to square that with uh, some of the other things the court says that would imply it's going to take at least a little while for this uh, redoing of consultation to take place. But there are those two elements to the judgment, uh, and it's important to to realize that both of those are conclusions from the from what the court says.
0: And is it specific on what exactly consultation means or what level of consultation would be acceptable? Because that was also brought up in that it's not as though First Nations groups or those groups that are opposed to this have veto power. But at what point do you, are you able to go back to the NEB and prove, yes, we consulted and this was a significant amount of consultation. We have met the requirement.
2: Right. So the, the consultation won't need to go back to the NEB. The consultation just needs to be done um, prior to a new uh, governing council or effectively federal cabinet decision. Uh, and the government needs to satisfy itself essentially that it's met the legal requirements. If it fails to do so, it's subject to challenge. Uh, the the definition of consultation isn't what the general public might associate always with that term uh, or some of the, the advocates that are out there are talking about. There's a specific legal meaning to consultation um, in terms of what needs to be done. And that's Um, receiving information on potential impacts on Aboriginal rights or or treaty rights in some other situation. Um, uh, But where the court says the government fell short is it wasn't responsive to those in any way. Um, And there are uh, different standards in different circumstances um, uh, in terms of what's called the depth of consultation. And here things were at the deeper end. Um, And so the government needed to be responsive. Sometimes that would be through accommodating potential impacts on rights and sometimes the government doesn't have to accommodate um, and might choose not to, Uh, they need to think about that uh, but then they would need to respond more fully and uh, there's been a shift towards uh, the idea that the government really should give reasons where it's not carrying out an accommodation and here the government didn't do that and they didn't even have someone that was Really well positioned enough to engage in what was needed for consultation. Uh, from what the court says, they had lower level civil servants involved uh, that really weren't well placed to do what needed to be done. And so they're going to need to redevise that process uh, when they redo the consultation.
0: What kind of a timeline? Do, are, are we even able? Are we at a position or at a place where we can even try and guess what type of timeline? With the, the federal government vowing that it's still going to go ahead, what timeline would we might might we see unfold from this point on?
2: Yeah, I mean, there are some complexities that come to this because um, the government is legally required to reconsider this in in good faith in light of the um, the new analysis. Um, So to vow that they're going to go ahead... Is actually an awkward element, um, and they're also going to be in a little bit of a conflict of interest now as the uh, the owner of the pipeline. Um, so they may need to devise some different processes to uh, to avoid the the perception of a conflict of interest around an ultimate decision, which could well be to go ahead with the pipeline. In terms of timeline, I'd say we're looking at a minimum of uh, several months, but that would be very optimistic and very efficient. Um, uh, more likely, we're looking looking at six months and maybe up to a, to a year um, uh, in terms of some of the complexities involved. But uh, if it could run very efficiently, it might be that uh, it is something that's done within a few months, and uh, it may be much less of a, a consequence than, uh, than some people are uh, thinking. At the same time, the fact that construction has to halt, Uh, has some implications probably for then getting that restarted. And uh, in a country like Canada, it's possible to do different things during different seasons of the year, Uh, and so there might be physical implications in terms of construction being uh, pulled to a halt right at this moment in terms of uh, how quickly it could restart if the project were later approved.
0: All right, we'll leave it there. I'm sure we'll have many more conversations about this. Dwight Newman, thank you so much for your time this morning. Sure. Thank you. Well, my next guest was out for a walk one day, spotted a coyote, tried to get a picture, and that set the ball in motion to the uh, restoration of a B.C. penitentiary cemetery. Sounds like the few things don't really go together, but they do. And joining me on the line to talk about how things unfolded is Jamie McAvoy, a New Westminster City Councillor. Jamie, thanks so much for being here. Hello. Hello. Uh, So take us back to how you discovered this uh, cemetery.
3: Well, I knew about the cemetery's uh, existence, but I didn't know where it was. It was uh, cut off and hidden by a development site, and I saw a coyote uh, taking a walk one day. The roads had been laid out, but the buildings hadn't been built, and uh, about a very short distance, actually, a coyote came out on the road in front of me about 15 feet and jogged ahead of me. And uh, I decided to take some pictures, and that happened four or five times until the coyote jumped over a fence. Uh, when I when I went to the fence, the coyote was gone, but I, I realized that there were some uh, headstones of a type in there, and I realized I was standing in the B.C. Penn Cemetery. That's how I found it.
0: And from that point, uh, did you decide right then and there something needed to be done to restore it, or, or what did you do next?
3: Well, I wrote an article in 2007 called The Top Ten Endangered Heritage of New Westminster, and uh, I put that in the article and um, started thinking about how the cemetery could be restored. Um, But uh, it it got forgotten with time until some corrections officials and members of the public came forward and, and said, we're interested in this site and we'd like to see something happen. And I said, hallelujah, let's do this project.
0: And and was it difficult, like you said, or there's a development nearby, it's it's not the easiest place to find. So was it difficult from that point to get to restore it or to get that ball moving?
3: Um, it, it wasn't difficult now because the Victoria Hill neighborhood has been built and it's completed, so the site has better access now. Um, so it wasn't that difficult to get the ball rolling.
0: And what has the response been as far as, or what are you actually doing then to the headstones and to the grave, the grave site?
3: Well, the site was completely overgrown, tall grass, uh, bramble bushes, blackberry bushes, so, and uh, pretty lumpy. So, so um, we cleaned the site first of all. You, you know, uh, got rid of all the underbrush, uh, leveled the site, gave it gave it some nice groundwork. We uh, cleaned the headstones and uh, set them in cement. The headstones were just on the on rocks like you would find in a field with uh, prisoner numbers carved into them. Uh, anyone could have walked in there and just taken them all or thrown them into the ravine next door. So, so we set them in cement so that they're secure and protected, um, provided some reflection space, and we put up some interpretive signage that tells you a little bit about uh, the cemetery, but also gives you the names that match those numbers.
0: And from what I understand, though, finding the names is no small task. And in fact, there are many that it's still unclear who is buried there.
3: Uh, that's right. There's about 61 graves there. There's only 47 that had stones. Um, and even, even with the research, there's still one one that we're really not sure who's buried there. Um, there's no complete B.C. pen archives. When the B.C. pen was closed, they, those things were just being thrown in the garbage. <laughs> and uh, some corrections workers decided to rescue what they could. And so this was a project of putting out the word, really. Does anybody have any information? Does anybody know this prison number? Um, looking looking in the old newspaper articles to see what we could find for certain dates. So so it, it was uh, detective work.
0: And, and it sounds like, too, in that people might think, oh, well, they were prisoners, so they probably died, they didn't uh, have families, maybe not a lot of loved ones, so they'd done bad things. But it's a big range as far as what uh, the convictions were and what the prisoners were in there for.
3: Well, you've got a couple of people there who were lifetime criminals right up to murder, uh, you've also got uh, number 8869, Gordon Hawley, who stole $15 in socks. You've got uh, five Ducabor people who were arrested for public nudity. Uh, today, you wouldn't die in prison for those things.
0: Right. Uh, and one, <laughs> is it one or two that were part of a failed escape attempt?
3: That's right. Uh, Joseph Smith uh, and Herman Wilson uh, attempted to escape and were buried at the site um, they were deliberately buried, uh, because of their escape and because they shot a guard, they were, they were deliberately buried in a far corner of a cemetery with no marker. Joseph was hanged for his attempted escape, and Herman died of his wounds.
0: Hmm. And, and the cause of death as well, uh, tuberculosis, which you likely wouldn't die of that in prison uh, today either. Uh, suicide uh, w- was a cause of death for many of these as well. What do you hope the public learns or what do you hope becomes uh, of this site?
3: Well, this is a real slice of social history in British Columbia. And ultimately, those stories tell you a lot about our province. There's a lot of historic sites that are dedicated to premiers or famous colonial figures, but there's not that many historic sites that are actually just dedicated to the experiences of the average person and and what happened and what kind of conditions people were living in at the time. Um, I hope this site causes some reflection and some thinking about that.
0: Uh, do you have any confidence that the one that we don't know who it is, that, that somebody might come forward or there might be somebody that has that piece of the puzzle? Uh,
3: I think it's possible. Uh, already this week, uh, with the news getting out, I've heard from a few people who who have a relative buried there and had some information about that relative. So um, we've really seen this. It's wanting the public to get involved in this project. At this point, there's a few websites out there that people have created. um, And if people have information, they come forward to the City Archive in New Westminster with that information. We'd love to hear from them.
0: Do you think that if you hadn't discovered it that day, uh, I mean, we, we knew where the penitentiary was and people knew that this was there. Is there the chance that it would have just been paved over and we would have lost this site?
3: It wouldn't have been paid over because it was always legally a cemetery. It was transferred to the city um, in 1980 when the BC Penn closed, but that transfer was really treated as a formality to, and it was an inaccessible site. But it was still legally a cemetery. It still would have stayed there, um, but but for for how long it might have been forgotten, who knows, it could have been a very long time.
0: And the cost of doing this, uh, relatively speaking, it hasn't been that much money, has it?
3: It's been about $26,000, but uh, about 14000 of that has been the geotechnical work in making sure that we have the proper proper parameters of the cemetery, that we've identified any other graves, uh, that sort of thing.
0: All right. If someone's listening to this and they want to go check it out, which is what is the easiest way to access it?
3: Well, the easiest way is to go to uh, Francis Way in New Westminster or to contact the uh, Archives or Museum in New Westminster and they can give you a little map in some directions.
0: All right. Uh, Very interesting project. Thank you so much, uh, Councillor McAvoy, for joining us today to talk about this. Thank you. All right, that is uh, Jamie McAvoy. He's a New Westminster City Councillor talking about the restoration of the B.C. uh, Penitentiary, the uh, Penitentiary Cemetery. And it would be fascinating if that one particular uh, headstone, that one grave that is unclear, nobody at this point knows who it is, if somebody was to come forward with that information and finally we're putting that piece of the puzzle back in place.